Praise Jesus. Lord Almighty, we come to You again because You have opened Your Word to us. Open our hearts now so that we can hear and we can know You better and therefore love You and trust You and obey You better. In Jesus' name, Amen. Why is it that when we talk to God, it's called prayer, but when God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. That's a joke from Lily Tomlin from years ago. But it opens a paradox for us Christians, because Christians are forced to admit by the nature of the fact that we are supernaturalists, we are forced to admit there are many paradoxes in our life. Now, a paradox, remember, is a seeming contradiction that is nevertheless affirmed by a trusted authority. Namely, in this case, God's Word. Now, Ms. Tomlin makes a funny point, and we can, of course, laugh at it. Prayer is what we do when we intentionally stop what we're doing in order to communicate with the Lord. We focus our attention on Him as opposed to the frantic helter-skelter usually going on in our own hearts. And hearing God's voice, of course, is best done by taking your Bible and reading it out loud. That's how you can hear God speaking to you out loud. But we are supernaturalists. We are people who are convinced that there is a real God who can and in fact does periodically pop up into our lives, especially when we find it inconvenient. One of the most perplexing paradoxes in the Christian life is this relationship between the fact that we are saved by grace through faith and that we are saved so that we can obey God's commands. We struggle with the relationship between the necessity of obeying God's commands and trusting that we are not saved by obeying God's commands. Now, if you know your history at all, which I know most of you know some history, I'm sure, Martin Luther was faced with the Catholic opposition, and one of the things they drove at him, and one of the things they accused him of, is you're one of these licentious antinomians. You don't like the law of God, and you're going to take away the law completely, and everybody's going to become this debauched person because we're saved by grace through faith, so why work? Well, you know, the truth is that kind of charge has always been laid against every Christian who has really preached the gospel of Christ. In fact, we will eventually, Lord willing, get to Romans 6 where Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, not on your life. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? This idea that we are preaching antinomianism against the law, we are preaching that you don't need the law at all, will lead to just 
plain debauchery by everyone is a false charge. And Paul says, no, that's not it. Paul recognized that as soon as you start communicating the good news, that all your sins can be forgiven simply by trusting God's promise, some poor soul was going to say, then why not just sin the more so God will get more credit for His forgiveness? Paul, Martin Luther, we respond by saying, not on your life. Those who have been born into Christ cannot live in the sin that they have died to. And so, this week, this, this debate that's going on has been going back and forth in my mind. And I'm trying to wrap my mind around how do I give you all a big idea for this, this idea that we need to obey God's commands and the fact that we are not saved by obeying God's commands. And I was really struggling. And, and finally, this absolutely original idea popped into my head. And I said, I know what I'll say. Trust and obey. And you know, I just thought that was such a great idea. Maybe I'll come up with some catchy tune and I'll teach it all to you next week. How's that? Amen. Trust and obey. But for now, we are going to finish the first and the most painful portion of Paul's letter to the Romans so that when we get back to Romans after Easter, we can preach Paul's version of the good news starting in three, chapter 3, verse 21 and going through the rest of the Bible, really, but through the end of 4. And in our passage tonight, Paul is going to make three very distinct points that teach us that God alone is righteous and everyone else is unrighteous because we knowingly sin in both attitude and action. And this anti-God bent is pervasive and is universal such that no law can save us. So let's look at the first eight verses where we see that God alone is righteous. Paul is talking, you remember, to the person he's arguing with in his head, and he's writing down the argument, and this is where he begins. His arguer says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul responds, Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? No way! Let God be true, though everyone else were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But, his arguer says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I'm sorry, that was actually Paul. I speak in a human way. By no means! For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, he, the responder says, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Paul replies, and why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now remember, as we are going through the book of Romans, 
We learned last time that the Jews, those who were members of the earthly community, the the nation of Israel, could not be saved by the mere external observance of the various Jewish signs. We've talked about this now a couple of times, but they had four signs that they relied upon. Four things that they said, we are Jews because we do these four things. And they're circumcision, temple worship, living and eating kosher. And then fourthly, and most importantly to the Jews of the first century, was keeping the Sabbath. And as we go straight through the book of Romans, Paul writes as if he's arguing with someone. Now, some people, and I actually think this is right, speculate that Paul is arguing with his former self, with his Pharisee self, with the self that was pre-Damascus Road experience. But whoever it is that Paul is debating, Paul needs to answer the question, okay, Paul, if obeying the external laws, especially these four signs, isn't going to do it, do it, then what good is it to be a Jew? What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul responds, much. In every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now the advantage is much, but here he only identifies the one thing. And that is the Tanakh, or the, the Torah, the old, what we now call the Old Testament. Now, when we get eventually... <laughs> Lord willing, we'll get to Romans chapter 9. Paul is going to give a more expansive understanding of what that is. But the point that Paul wants to land on here right now is God's word is true. God's word can be relied upon. God's word is the foundation, as Peter says, of life and godliness. God's Word is what we must depend upon. Thank you. I always like my amens. And so he is here camping on the fact that God is righteous. God is true. But then the argument takes kind of a strange, interesting turn. In verses 7 and 8. And here, we have to remember, Paul is arguing with somebody, and they're kind of going back and forth, and sometimes it's hard to see who's, who's arguing, who's saying what. But in verse 7, I'm pretty sure it's the person Paul is arguing with. And he says, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? In other words, Paul... You got this all wrong. You're saying that the external obedience to the law is chucked out the window. And so the, the Jew, the arguer with Paul, kind of steps, steps up the ante. And he says, okay, I'm going to take your argument to the next level and show you how foolish you are. And Paul says, you're not going to play that game with me. Watch this. He's going to take, you think you're bumping up my argument. I'm going to go another notch. And Paul says, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. There's a Facebook person. If any of you follow me on Facebook, I'm sorry. But if there's a person that from time to time starts arguing with me on my Facebook, and yeah, I see you laughing. Um, One time he made the comment to the effect that, you know, 
you Christians ought to be in favor of abortion. Oh my goodness, where is this going? I, 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 where is this going? And he said, no, the argument's simple. If we kill them in the womb, they never have to go through the horrors of earth and they'll just go straight to heaven. Paul had a phrase for that argument. Their condemnation is just. We are supernaturalists. We believe that God is living and active in this world. And we believe that we must never do evil that good may come. Even if someone has some argument for it. We believe that obedience, in spite of what the world is saying, is the true path to righteousness. Now, Them's fighting words. And remember, I, me, Greg Burtnett, I am not pretending to know where that line is where you say to somebody, your condemnation is just. God, fortunately, is the judge and not me. My job is to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. But... We do have evidence in Scripture. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. And C.S. Lewis reminds us that in the end, God finally says to those who wish to remain lost, Thy will be done. No matter who says what or how or when, Your job and mine is to trust and obey. God is righteous. God's Word is righteous. God's Word is the foundation of righteousness. And it is the source of finding all that God would have for and from us. And where you see a clear command, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, don't do it. And where you see a clear command, pray without ceasing. Meditate on Scriptures. Love others as I love you. Do it. Obey, obey. But now, okay, let me preach for a second. Let me get into a sermon here for a moment. If this is true, if we are to trust and obey, then let's pick a command. Meditate on God's Word. Study God's Word. Okay, then, okay, Pastor Greg, how do we trust when we're reading God's Word? Okay, well, number one, this is really easy. Have a quiet time. Open God's Word. Decide that your supernatural God will meet you early in the morning or late at night and it will be worth it for you to have a quiet time. Decide that that's a reality. Hey, listen. If you got to take legal addictive stimulants to do that, coffee or tea or Coke, do it. You're still trusting in God. You're just also trusting in the caffeine atom. That's okay. Molecule, I guess. So, how do I trust? You trust by having your quiet time. Decide you're going to do it. And then number two, you're going to trust as you think and pray about what you're reading. Huh. How, many have you, how many have ever done this? You're doing your Bible reading through the Word in a year. Um... And you just let the words go underneath your eyes. 
Okay, is anybody going to confess to that? I, I'm going to confess to that. Especially, you, you, never mind, I won't. There are certain passages that it is a little more difficult to stay attentive to, to than others. Am I wrong? Decide ahead of time that you're going to think about what you're reading. And while you're thinking about what you're reading, you're also reading it in light of the Holy Spirit being with you. Lord, open this up to me. And then the third part of trusting and obeying while you're having your quiet time, I know I'm telling you all this, this is new stuff. To, it's not. Have your quiet time. Think and pray about what you read. And then plan. Decide in advance that you are going to trust and obey what you read. If the Lord says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see the Lord. If that's what you're reading that day, decide ahead of time that you're going to pray and ask that God would give you the grace to have a pure heart. And trust that He will show you Himself. Believe that your supernatural God really can break into your heart and your mind so that you will experience Him. You might rephrase the old hymn, Trust and Obey. This is the only way to be happy in Jesus. Allow me to keep the sermon going. Here we got, we're preaching now. The hymn got it right. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Getting up earlier than you otherwise would need to so that you can meditate on God's Word is not necessarily fun. Right? Nevertheless, as you make daily, daily Bible meditation a part of your life, that habit will be a part of the kind of life that will make you a happier person. Now, I bet there's at least one person in this room who's thinking somewhere along the lines of, well, Pastor Greg, you know, we're Christians. We don't say happy. We say joy. To each his own. I remember being really upset at John Piper because I was reading one time and he made the the terrible sin of bucking the evangelical trend against saying happy, and he just kind of equated happiness with joy. And I thought, oh man, I disagree with him there. Okay, listen, I tell you what. We all want to be happy. And if you want to stick by your guns and say, no, no, we're talking about joy, then just take everything I just said and translate it as joy in your, in your head, in your heart. But if you want to be the kind of person that knows that happiness, that joy from the Lord, then it's going to take a structuring of your life to be that kind of person. And it takes time. But we are also supernaturalists. We believe that God is intimately involved in us. And He will give us those Sparks of joy that we need along the road so as we grow in Him until that day when we are glorified and all of this veil of tears will be gone. Oh, come on, there's got to be an amen for that. But now we're going to continue. Trust and obey. And we're going to find out that no one other than God is righteous. All right, this is going to be painful. Keep your, keep your ears glued to God's Word. What then? 
Are we Jews any better off? Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh man, that hurt. Paul, you need some self-esteem, brother. No, he doesn't. You know why? Because those are all quotes from the Old Testament. Those are all quotes from God's Word. And when I was reading John Stott, one of the things that he commented was, if you go back and read non-Christian, non-Jewish, you read the Greek philosophers of first century, they make Paul here sound like he's going easy on us with how they describe their fellow man and the evil in our hearts. And so as I was meditating on this, I was thinking, what do I make of this? I mean, we're bad. Okay, let's, let's just go with that. We're bad. I got it. But John Stott made a useful observation. And he said, if, if you go through each of these verses, you will find three realities are emphasized. And the first one is that all of us are bent away from God. We are anti-God. God is over here. I'm going that way. And every one of us is guilty of this. And furthermore, the second observation is that this tendency to go away from God is universal. It's a part of everyone's DNA. Every single one of us. Every single person in this room has a flavor of sin that we are more liable to than another. I'm guilty. And you know what else? I know you are guilty too. I may not know what flavor of sin is your preferred flavor, but I know you have one. And because of that, you and I can identify as equals. As equally in need of the throne of grace. And the third thing that we learn from this, the third general truth, is that this tendency to be anti-God is not only universal, but it is pervasive. It covers every aspect of us. There is no part of us that is righteous, that we can stand on our own two feet and say, I got this. Whatever you think you're particularly good at, repent. Repent. Because you need it. And so do I. The word that theologians use here is total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. It means that every aspect of us is damaged. Our intellect is damaged. Mine more than others. Our spirit is damaged. Our bodies are damaged. Obviously. Is there an amen to that one? So... As we go through this life, we are to trust and obey. But my friends, your back will not always hurt. Your ears will not always ring. Your heart will not always ache. Your sin will not always gain victory over you. Let me give you two promises 
close your eyes and absorb this. Allow the Word of God and the promises of God to wash over you. Hear the Word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look, pay attention. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore and the former things have passed away. (coughs) That is a promise. Peter continues, Do not overlook this one fact, Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and it's a thousand years as is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness, godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, trust and obey. Because you have a promise that all your trusting and all your obeying will not be in vain. Trust that this valley of the shadow of death, trust that this veil of tears will not last. Sin and pain and death and heartache and body ache and trouble with your families will not be the last word. Live in hope and trust and obey. Now, as I end this section of Paul's letter, I want to, I want to get into some deeper weeds. You're going to need your thinking cap for the last two verses of this passage. And the big idea here is no law can save you. Verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, you ready? We must say one thing clearly and simply. We are saved by works. Christ's works. 
We are saved by works. Christ's works. And secondly, we can say one more thing absolutely clearly and simply. There is no law that can save. Why can I say that so clearly and simply? Because the law was never meant to save. Well, man alive, are you kidding me? If no law was ever meant to save, what did the Jews do for 1,500 years with the law? What was, what was that all about? Man, whole sermons, whole series of sermons could be preached just on that. I want to take that question and make it just a little step simpler and ask the question, what do Christians do with the law? And again, I, I need to put one more caveat on here. And I am using the law in this sense, not as the law of Moses. That's a whole other sermon we get to another time. If you have any questions, talk to Pastor Benji. When I'm using law in this case, I'm using it to describe the overall body of commands found in Scripture that apply to the church. Okay? Man, there's a whole series of lectures in seminary in just that one sentence. But I'm simplifying it. And so I want to answer the question... I want to to give an answer that theologians have almost universally agreed on two points. Two things that the law means, in my sense, what the law means to the Christian. And the first one is that the law, or the, the body of the commands found in Scripture that apply to Christians, is a mirror that should drive you to Christ. The law is a clear example. God is holy. I am not. And it should just be this glaring big sign that says, man alive, I can't do it. That's a clear example. And, and just about theologians of just about every single flavor have agreed on this. The second thing that most theologians have agreed on is that the law is a power to restrain evil. Now, now what on earth does that mean? What this means is that people know that murder is wrong. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you were raised. People know that murder is wrong. People know that lying is wrong. People know that doing bad is wrong. And uh, one of my favorite authors, his name is Jerry Bridges, and he, he said that when he is sharing the gospel, he takes confidence in one thing and that is he knows that the person that he's sharing with the gospel with his conscience is on his side this man's conscience is telling him you're a sinner you need to have your sins forgiven that's why another preacher one time said it's really simple all your sins can be forgiven are you interested in learning how? Now, if you're not interested, I'll keep on moving. But if you're interested, man, I've got good news. Amen? But now there's a third use of the law that theologians of different stripes have disagreed upon. There are, there's a third use of the law that not every Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christian has agreed about. Of course, the other people are wrong. The third use of the law is that the law is a guide for Christian living. 
or it answers the question, what does it look like to live a life that is pleasing to God? A friend of Donna and I, um, she said she would never consider divorcing her husband, Bob. Murdering him, maybe. But she knew that she would never divorce him. Now, what if you were Bob and you decided that you knew that Dot was always going to be faithful to you, so you were going to go live whatever way you wanted to and just go do whatever you wanted to because you knew that Dot was always going to be faithful to you. That's dumb. Amen. Amen. <laughs> That's dumb. I mean, come on. You, you, this person loves you this much. You want to you be with that person. You don't want to keep putting things up between the two of you. That's ridiculous. And it is exactly as ridiculous, perhaps even more so, to say that, oh, I love Jesus Praise Jesus. But when he tells you not to lust or covet, you, well, yeah, but yeah, I got this thing that I want to covet over here, and you're just kind of soaking in it. And, and you really don't care that Jesus is over there. Oh, you, you'll get to Jesus on Sunday morning. You'll, you'll get to Jesus tomorrow when you do your quiet time. Right now you want to soak in this vomit? Does that make sense? No, of course it doesn't. And just like, and, and Bob and Dot did love each other, they, they were, I love those two people. I can't wait to see Dot again. Just like Bob and Dot loved each other, and just like they wanted to live to please each other, the law, as we are using it here, is God saying, this is how you can relate to me in love. But the arguer against Paul will say, I'm not under the law. Indeed, praise Jesus, trust and obey. You are not under the law. You are right. But allow me to give another preaching tool. You've heard it said, you've heard me say, Christ saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin, and He will one day save us from the presence of sin. And what is this power of sin? Well, it is death. Why death? Death because the law tells us that we are subject to death because of our sin. And as we are embracing this little pile of vomit over here, we are experiencing death. We are experiencing, even at that moment, the separation from the Lord because we're choosing this pile of vomit. Let it go! No, I'm not going to do Disney right now. Let it go! And trust that right now, Jesus is saving you from the power of sin to live like He is already doing it in you and through you. And trust that you will, in fact, be powered to obey. Now, Michael Horton, a theologian that I'm getting to know, I did a little bit of reading in one of his books today. He said, The law continues to provide us with the soundest guidance available gives us guidance on how we can love Jesus. But apart from Christ and the indicative announcement of what He has done, that He has saved you from your sins, that announcement of what He has done for us and in us, it can only lead us to either despair or self-righteousness. So trust and obey. 
Pastor Benji and I were talking this week, and one of the things that we think is so funny is because both of us are, are similar in the despairing aspect, when I, when I am wallowing in my sin, I just, I just turn to despair. And that, that's the bent I have. And, and we know that there are others who are like, oh, I'm good, woohoo, yay. And we're like, dude, how, how do you do that? Well, yeah, we all have our flavors of sin. But what we must do is we must turn to God's trustworthy word. And we must find there a promise and trust it. Get up in the morning. Find a promise. If you need to, use a study guide to help you find that promise. And as you go through the day, hold on to that promise. Grab it. And cling to it with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. Find a command that you struggle with. Lord Almighty, Lord, You know I struggle with this. Help me. Draw me to You. You find, for example, the command to seek first the Kingdom of God. And as you look at this command, seek first the kingdom of God, you're going to realize, man, this is tough. Lord, I don't have a clear example here. Show me. Show me a clear example. And th this is my experience. This is, this is how I have experienced the Lord. Maybe your experience will be different. Lord, you say seek first the kingdom of God and all of your righteousness. Okay, okay, Lord, I'm opening my heart to you. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know. But I'm going to trust that you, we're supernaturalists, remember? We're, we believe that God is living and active in this world. I am going to trust you, Lord, that you are going to show me what this is all about. And you're going to go along through your day. You're going to be cruising along. And it may not even be that day. It may be the next or two days later. And the Lord is going to show you a situation in which you need to trust and obey. Allow Him to lead you in that. Allow Him to guide you. John Bunyan said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the Gospel breeds. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Because when that situation comes up and you have to seek first the kingdom of God, <laughs> sometimes you're going to fail. And you're going to have to say, Lord, forgive me. I'm coming back to you. I did this with each of my boys, and I have now done it with my little girl. But she recently had her backpack. And you know how kids get, they, they, they start latching onto things. Well, she just had to wear this backpack. So we go, when I get home during the day, I take her and I say, you want to go mail, girl? And that means I pick her up and we walked one house to the east and we go open up our mailbox and we get our mail and... And so we're talking as, as we go. And this particular day, I said, Eliana, who is carrying this backpack? And the answer is, she is, right? 
I mean, let's just be honest here. Let's just be clear. She's got, she's wearing the little straps and gravity is pulling down on her little back. You know, it's not very heavy, but who knows what she has stuffed in that thing. But anyways, she's carrying this backpack. Eliana, who's carrying you? Well, I am. And in that sense, I am the one who's carrying the backpack, right? Now this is analogy. And by definitions, analogies are not perfect. If it was a perfect analogy, it would be the same thing. But what we get is this reality. And she understood the reality that my Baba is carrying me. My Baba is the one who is bringing me down the street, unlocking the mailbox, getting our mail out, and walking back down. And all the while, she's got this backpack on. Well, you are commanded not to lie. And when you're faced with the temptation to lie, and you don't, who is the one obeying the command? Well, you are. Right? You are the one who made your lips tell the truth. But who's carrying you? Who is the one strengthening you? Who is the one enabling you? That's where the trust comes in. Lord, I'm going to trust that you will give me the grace I need to obey you right now. And your job is to say, okay, I trust you. Let's do this. Trust and obey For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Lord Almighty, give us great grace because this is so hard. It gets right to the heart of where we are. And we so desperately need You to work in us and through us that which will make us those men and women who will trust and obey. Give us grace to do so this evening for our joy, for your glory, and the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming.